Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael Oslin, the Williams Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is China versus America, Going Global, and it was recorded on August 10th, 2018. Good morning. Uh, I know that next on the schedule is lunch, so I'm going to make sure I don't go over. I've got a timekeeper in back, but I do want this session to be useful as well as interesting. So the first question I have is, does anybody have a dream vacation planned for Palau? Well, if you do, you might have to take a boat because Palau's only airline closed down last month. Why? Well, Palau, this tiny little island nation, is one of only 16 countries in the world to diplomatically recognize Taiwan. So China put a ban on all tourism to Palau from China and put huge fines on any travel companies that decided to go to Palau. And within a month, the airline had to close down. Uh, how about Taiwan? Anybody going to Taiwan? Anybody gone on to United or American lately? Have you, have you typed in? I want to go to Taipei. So you typed in Taiwan. It doesn't exist anymore. Don't worry, the country is still there, but no airline in the world will acknowledge that Taiwan exists as an independent country. Instead, it'll say Taipei, that's the capital of Taiwan, it'll say Taipei, China or sometimes just Taipei. Why? Because again, Beijing put pressure on all the leading airlines in the world to take the designation Taiwan off of their websites. So if you go in and type in, I want to go to Taiwan, it'll say no such country exists. These are just two examples of the way in which the competition between the United States and China has gone global. And, and they happen to be from the airline industry, they happen to be from the tourism uh, industry, and you may have read about them. But they are indicative, I think, of a way in which what we thought would be a growth of China into the world uh, economy and the world political system that would begin to meld with our norms and our ways of doing business has been completely derailed. And so what I want to do today is talk to you a little bit about what that global competition looks like, why it's so significant, what it means for us, and then also maybe some reasons why we shouldn't worry about it too much. Um, I, it's no big secret how important China's become, right? How big the economy is, how significant it is. You know, even 10 years ago, you know, you'd have to talk to Americans a little bit more about it, but we know that today. But I would say that, uh, at least I live in Washington, D.C. I work in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office. So we bring the, the sort of the scholarly approach that Hoover has into that, that D.C. maelstrom that Dave Brady just talked about, try to get people to think beyond the headlines, beyond Facebook. It ain't easy, trust me, but we try to do it. Uh, so I live in Washington, I work in Washington, D.C. And I would say that in Washington, D.C., everyone understands the China challenge. Everybody understands how big it is, but when they think about China acting in the world, when they think about what can Beijing do to change the world, they probably have this idea of China in their mind. It, we know it's big. We know how significant it is. Always been the most populous country on earth, always, uh, or at least at times in history, one of the richest. But we also thought it was, was underdeveloped. 
thought it was more focused internally than externally. Even over the past 15, 20 years, as we've seen it grow, I think in some way we've had a mental image of a China that, of course, we wanted to trade with and, and work with, but one that was more like this. Whereas the reality is this is the China we face, a China that is confident, sometimes overly confident, that is competent, often very competent, but that is assertive and that is aggressive, that has decided that it is going to use the wealth that is represented here in Shanghai to not just become wealthier at home, to not just become more respected, but to actually change the way that people think about the world, i.e., if you want to travel to Taiwan, China wants you not to think of Taiwan as a country. It wants you to say you're going to go to Taipei, China, or to Hong Kong, which now has a little Chinese flag next to it on those same websites. Or God forbid you want to go to Palau, you may have to rent a rowboat to get there because it's not going to let you fly because it helped close down its airline. It's this China that we have to deal with. It's this China that increasingly is willing to challenge the United States, challenge the global community, to make everyone step into line with China's preferred vision of the world. So I, I want to go through that a little bit today, um, what, that, what that global challenge looks like. I'll start with the one that's easiest, probably. It's easiest because it's the one that, uh, when we hear about China in the news, we mostly hear about this, I'll tell you what it is in a second. It's the one, by the way, that Washington, D.C. is most focused on, and that is the military challenge from China. Now, from one perspective, this was actually the easiest way for China to become powerful, right? As it traded more, as it globalized, as we brought it into the world uh, trade organization and the like, uh, China became comparatively, much wealthier than it ever had been. And it turned a lot of that money, not only into the glittering Shanghai that you saw a second ago, but into a China that was building up its military. And it had a strategy. It had a strategy long before it had the military. The strategy was to stretch out into the, uh, the Western Pacific, or its east, right? So that's going east from China. It's what we talk about as the Western Pacific, with these, um, these island chains. I think I'm supposed to have a, a pointer with these island chains, the first island chain and the second island chain, to control the waters inside of those, to have unfettered access out into the Western Pacific. Of course, we're over here, right? We're over on this side. And then down, down into the South China Sea and even farther. Now, it had this strategy long before it had the military to do it. But this is not the China of 2008. This is the China of 2018. It's a China that has developed aircraft carriers in order to transit through those seas. None of the other countries in that region have aircraft carriers. The only one who does regularly is the United States. India's building one. Japan has helicopter carriers. Doesn't have an aircraft carrier. Stealth fighters look shockingly like our stealth fighters because they stole all the technology, which means you paid for it, by the way, just, just to let you know. Or in the cyber realm to take down the websites in Taiwan, take down the websites in Tokyo or Seoul. So the strategy that China had, it has over the past 10 years, roughly, been able now to fulfill. It has become, by most accounts, the dominant power in the Pacific Ocean, in the Western Pacific, for sure. I mean, the Americans are still there, but for us, don't forget, it's an away game. We have to bring, we have to bring ships and 
and uh, military personnel and supplies all the way from San Diego, stopping off at Hawaii. For China, it's right in their waters. And the way they've done it increasingly is by building and militarizing islands throughout the region, in particular the South China Sea, but also, as I'll talk about in a few minutes, getting access to lots of other islands throughout the region. Now, this, this is visible. This we've been able to focus on. Washington downplayed the China military challenge for a very long time. They thought it would take years for it to get an aircraft carrier, decades for it to have stealth weaponry, that it would never be a significant cyber challenger, and it, it could build these little islands. By the way, these weren't islands before. These were uh, coral reefs that they dredged up from the bottom of the sea and built full bases on that have long runways, have radars, have emplacements for uh, anti-aircraft and anti-ship missiles. These are, for the most part, impregnable bases that now dot the South China Sea. And for a decade or more, we, we basically ignored it. We didn't challenge the Chinese. We told them, don't do it, and they, they said, fine, thank you, we'll take that into, into account, don't worry about it. Uh, and meanwhile, all the other countries in the region were getting more and more nervous. And they were saying to Washington, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to sail more ships? Are you going to put more people here? Are you going to build more planes? What are you going to do? And we kept saying, well, we just want China to act like a, a productive member of the global economy. And China said, that's exactly what we want you to say. That's exactly what we want you to say. Because by 2020 or 2025, we're going to be able to control all the waters within those island chains. And if you talk to serious military professionals, Navy professionals today, from the United States as well as the other countries, they will tell you that for the most part, China is now the dominant power there. Washington, I think, has sort of woken up to this. It gets the fact that there is now a major military challenge in the seas. Problem is, once China's built things like this, it doesn't go away. We'd have to take it away from China. But that, of course, means war. Now, some of you, by the way, may have heard or maybe even read some of these more sensational accounts of a coming war with China and the United States. I don't think there's going to be a war between China and the United States. Despite the history of the first part of the 20th century, it's actually very difficult to have two great powers stumble into war. It happens very rarely. What's much more likely, however, is that one great power cedes its position to another rising power, that it chooses not to challenge it, that it misinterprets what the rising power is doing, that it loses influence even while it thinks it is being responsible and prudent. And before it knows it, its influence, its own power in that region or that area has dissipated. That's the challenge we face from China today, not that our aircraft carrier is going to go against its aircraft carrier, but that China has the influence now in the region to do just about what it wants, including these bases, thumb its nose at the world court, at the Court of Appeals in The Hague, and militarize the most strategically vital body of water in the world, through which 70% of all global trade passes. So the first global challenge that we faced from China, and I would argue that we have not deterred, is the military one. But there's other ones, and I just, I just want to spin through some of them before we, we get to questions. As I mentioned before, one reason China could do all of this is because it has become very wealthy. Not the people of China, but China as a country has become very wealthy. 
Right? It started uh, reforming its economy in the 1990s. We put it into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in 2001. China is now, by purchasing power parity accounting, the largest economy in the world. It still is absolutely smaller than, in absolute terms, smaller than the United States, but by purchasing power parity is the largest in the world. China is the world's largest trading nation. It is the largest trading nation of nearly every country on earth. And as it has accrued enormous amounts of national reserves, up where somewhere about $3 trillion, it has begun investing it around the world. And you can see just where some of the areas that it's invested on, uh, on this slide right here. So China has supplanted other lenders. It has supplanted Europe. It has supplanted the United States. It has supplanted Japan. It has made itself vital to the economies of countries all around the world, particularly developing economies, those in the Middle East and Africa and in our own backyard in Latin America. And often China's largesse, its aid, comes with strings attached. It's what is known as debt trap diplomacy. It gets these developing countries hooked, indebted. It's the global financial equivalent of opioids. They can't get off of it because they need the new road. They need the next road. They need the next school. China's there to build it for them. And when they can't pay off those debts, what does China do? It says, no problem. Why don't you give us control of this port here? Why don't you let our Navy have access? Why don't you let us build a, a radar station off your coast? And that's what's happening all through Asia. I'm going to return to that in just a second. But China's lending around the world, the second challenge that we faced in this global competition was not benign, and we didn't recognize it. Instead, we thought it was great that China was getting more involved. We thought, sure, it can set up an Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. We complained about it. We had a very ham-handed response under the Obama administration, but we didn't do anything to, to change it. And so instead, you see now where China, this bank that it has set up, has become a major lender throughout the world. Now, this bank, because it has other countries putting capital into it and it has a voting board like the World Bank, like the IMF, is, is not solely controlled from Beijing. But everybody knows that if you want money now for development, you can go to China directly or you can go through this subsidiary it has set up, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And in fact, at this point in time, basically the only two countries not to be part of this bank as paid-in capital providers are the United States and Japan. We've stood on the outside, and everybody, including every European nation, has become a significant provider of, of capital into the bank and has a seat on the board. And you might say, that's okay. China doesn't determine who gets the loans. This board does. But the point is, it's headquartered and run through China, and it is a recognition by the global financial community that China is now one of the leading players. All of this has been part of a strategy that you may have heard of. It's called the New Silk Road, or the One Belt, One Road, or the Belt and Road Initiative. You've all heard about it. Now, an actual slide that would show all the different things that the Belt and Road is doing would, would look like one of those massive Venn diagrams with all these different circles and intersecting lines and the like. This is about the simplest one. The way to think of the Belt and Road 
is that it is a gigantic $1 trillion infrastructure spending program by China to link Eurasia, north and south, east and west, reaching all the way, as you can see, into Europe under Chinese development aid and trade packages. Now, the truth is, I'm actually a skeptic about the Belt and Road. Xi Jinping, the president of China, went to Davos two years ago and said, we're going to put a trillion dollars into this. We'll wait and see. We'll see if all that money actually comes out. But you know what? In politics, perception is as important as reality. In international politics, it's just the same. Everybody around the world is talking about the Belt and Road. Everyone around the world says this is the greatest development plan since the Marshall Plan. China has the vision to unite the world. China has the vision to build roads across the Eurasian continent, has a seaborne component, as you can see, with ports linked in, has trade agreements going back and forth, and lending as part of it. And so the perception, once again, is that going forward into the 21st, the rest of the 21st century, it's China that's driving the boat, not the United States, not the World Bank, not Western Europe, but that if you don't become part of the One Belt and One Road, then you're going to be missing out on the greatest potential buying opportunity of all time. And so every country is trying to jump in and get part of the Belt and Road. But again, the Belt and Road comes with strings. And if you just take a look, take a look at those lines that are on there for a second. I, I don't have a, a good uh, exact equivalent. But one thing China's been doing has been fortifying its new Silk Road. If you saw where some of those lines were going, these are exactly the places where China goes to those countries and says, by the way, we'd like control of the port, or we'd like access to the port. This is uh, this one right down here, if you can see Sri Lanka. There's a very strategic port called Hambantota. You can see it, it has access to the entire Indian Ocean. So strategically, incredibly important. Last month, Sri Lanka just turned over Hambantota to China for a 99-year lease. Why? Because it couldn't pay back the billions of dollars it owed China for the development of that very port. So now the Chinese companies control Hambantota, and Chinese ships are able to sail to Hambantota, to the Maldives, uh, over here to Djibouti, where China is building a military base. If you tracked this with the Silk Road, you'd see that the two are interlinked. So we think, again, that's why I showed that first slide. We think of China as people on bicycles in a, in a city that hasn't been built up yet, that you're never going to see the Chinese military going out of, out of China. They're all around Eurasia. They've sailed into the Mediterranean. Even, and I'm sorry, I didn't have time to get this slide, um, they're in the Atlantic Ocean. You know the Azores? Off the eastern coast, uh, sorry, the western coast of, of Africa? Chinese are trying to get port access to the Azores. They have agreements there. You'll see Chinese ships in the Atlantic Ocean as well. So what China did is it knitted together its strategic ideas about how to spread out its influence, build the military that could do it, come up with financial packages that would be an incentive for countries to get into debt trap diplomacy, and then put it into this massive one belt and one road, which it could use to overlay with military bases and political influence throughout the region. It was a second great challenge in this global competition I don't think we paid enough attention to. But it's not the only one. First guns, the military, 
then butter, the Silk Road, now the people. Now, for a lot of you, and certainly when I was growing up, for a pretty brief period of time, remember when we all complained about the Japanese tourists going everywhere and taking pictures on their Leicas and their Nikons? You know, and then I, I lived in Japan four years, so I went to, to Japan, and they, they just thought it was crazy that we thought that you know, a few 10,000 Japanese tourists were flooding the world. Well, the Chinese are flooding the world. When I was growing up and the Japanese were all out there, nobody was thinking about massive numbers of Chinese going abroad. But Chinese are now the largest single source of tourism and education emigration in the world. Millions of tourists. The global tourism industry, I don't know if any of you are involved in it. If you do, you know it better than I do. The global tourism industry depends on the Chinese. That's why Palau's airline collapsed. Because when the Chinese said no more tour groups, when Beijing said no more tour groups to Palau, that was 90% of its tourism revenue. And other nations have faced similar pressure. But these just give you some pictures. This, uh, since um, we're in a university, and I was a university professor, I'm particularly interested in this picture. Chinese students studying abroad. Look at that number. 2005, barely a decade ago, just over 50,000. Now over 300,000 Chinese students in the United States alone. 300,000 Chinese students. And the number of Chinese students overall who left to go abroad, over here, over 500,000. It dwarfs any other country. Now there's an argument that people make that this is really good. This is exactly what we want. We want those Chinese students to come to the United States or to Britain or to wherever because they're going to see our way of life, and they're going to fall in love with it. And then they're going to go back home, and they're going to say, you guys got to be more like America. And instead, there's a different reality. Chinese students abroad and Chinese interest groups abroad are the leading edge of China's global propaganda machine. This, on the bottom left here, is a picture of a protest in Melbourne, Australia, against Tibetan independence. There was a great story, I forget where it was, I think it might have been the Washington Post, not too long ago, some of you may have read it, about the Chinese students coming to the American universities. Anybody read this? Any of you read this? Um, few problems. Now, the reason we love them is real simple. Any, any guesses why we love Chinese students coming? They pay full freight. They pay full freight. Uh, so we want them in, right? And then this study was, the story was a great study, and it went through and it got some of the figures on how many of these Chinese students are actually English language capable at the university level. It was like 20%, maybe. Right? So they sit in class. They don't participate. They don't learn much. They don't care. We don't care. But what they are is organized. I'm not saying that every Chinese student is a stooge of the state, but they are organized. And there are professional agitators. Now, you've got to think back now. This is what we used to remember from the Cold War, right? The Comintern, sending out professional agitators to, to organize the students, right? Back in the 30s, the Trotskyites versus the anti-Trotskyites and the like. We have professional agitators that get these students organized and tell them, you will go out and you will scream and wave flags and talk about how wonderful China is when Jiang Zemin visits um, visits Harvard. I saw it. I couldn't find a picture. I was teaching at Yale when Hu Jintao came. So not only did they shut the entire campus down, I mean the entire campus down. I should have taken pictures. I didn't know I'd be doing this back then. This was about 10 years ago. They bust in 
They, the Chinese, bust in at least 30 busloads that I remember counting of people from New York, all with flags, and they blanketed New Haven. You could not walk five feet without running into a screaming knot of pro-Chinese demonstrators. They were not protesters. They were, what would you call them? Anti-protesters, supporters, whatever they were. And they do it over and over on campuses. So the campuses who love to have Hu Jintao come, they love to have Jiang Zemin come. What they don't want to have is a serious talk about Chinese human rights abuses, about oppression in Xinjiang, about forced abortion, about slave labor camps, about the threat to Taiwan. Nobody wants to talk about that. And one reason is this little thing down here, the Confucius Institute. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may have heard Marco Rubio talking recently about the Confucius Institutes. They are funded by the Chinese government. They are placed on over 100 US campuses and 500 campuses around the globe. And they are there to present a benign picture of China and to pressure campuses not to handle or talk about those hard issues and those disturbing issues that I talked about before. So we've got propaganda waves. Now I think I have five, five minutes left? 10, excellent. So I can tell you a little bit more about what China's doing around the world. So we'll leave that there, though. I love talking about it. Let's talk about something else. Again, let me refer to Japan for a second. Those of you who are old enough to remember, you remember what the stamp made in Japan used to mean in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, cheap. Tom's nice. I was going to use a worse word. I was going to use a bad word. It meant cheap. It meant cheap, right? And we thought Japan would never catch up with us. And of course it did. And it, and it helped define in the 70s and 80s and early 90s the globalization of uh, global supply chains, uh, of just-in-time inventory, of uh, high-end, cheaper consumer goods. And so now when we think of Sony and we think of Toyota, it's, it's natural. It's part of our world. We're on the cusp of that change with China right now. Because for the past couple of dozen years or so, when you thought made in China, you thought cheaper, lower-end goods. But that's not the China challenge that we face today. Perhaps the most significant challenge we face is that the US is losing the global innovation and R&D race with China. Now, do we still have the best universities and research institutes? Absolutely. Do we still have the best laboratories? Absolutely. But it is a wasting asset in the sense that our investments are declining, China's investments are growing. It's not static anymore. First of all, you can see this late stage research and development. So after the initial work has been done by us, often, though I don't want to cast aspersions, but often in US research labs that are filled with Chinese graduate students who then go back home to China, suddenly China has become a leader in late stage research and development. And you can see how much it is spending. So the, the original research, the pure research, is not done in China. But the monetized research, the applied research at the upper end, is increasingly done in China. And you can see, and you gotta take all of these with a bit of grain of salt, patent applications. You know, none of us are, unless you are a patent lawyer, none of us really understand what a patent actually does 10 years down the road, how significant it's been, how much it's, it's become a fundamental element of this or that production, but the sheer numbers don't lie. China far outstrips us on patent development. 
And what about the one area that none of us understand, but all of us are talking about incessantly? AI, artificial intelligence. This is one of the top state priorities of the Chinese government, is to become not an AI leader, but the AI leader, pouring billions of dollars into massive AI technological parks throughout the country. Huge amounts of AI patent applications you can see here in robotics, neural networks, facial and voice recognition. Now, of course, if you're the Chinese leadership, then you really want voice and facial recognition. Why? Because China, which already has 176 million surveillance cameras, wants to grow it to well over half a trillion by 2020. That's a year and a half away. China is the world's first pure technological surveillance state. Stalinist Russia, the world's first pure political human-based surveillance state. Those days are gone. You don't need to inform on your neighbor anymore. You don't need to inform on your parents anymore. You don't need to be a good member of the party. You simply need to walk outside your door. The latest figure I saw is that a Chinese company has claimed that in a country of 1.3 billion people, it can now identify any face in seven minutes. Seven minutes across the whole country. This is not being put to benign use. Already, there are some things that we, we sort of might like, to be quite frank. I just read a story that China uses this facial, re facial recognition to actually find deadbeat dads, dads who walked out on their family and aren't paying whatever you're supposed to pay in China or haven't paid your parking ticket. They find you in seven minutes. All right, so there's some upsides. I get that. But they also kicked, there's another story, they kicked some girl out of college last week because her father had welched on his debts. So you can see the cascade where the state now knows how to reach into every nook and cranny of your life. We don't want that here, but this is the technology that China's sharing, spreading around the world. It's giving drone technology to oppressive regimes so that they can do this, facial recognition, to hunt down pro-democracy demonstrators and the like. It's changing China, it's changing Eurasia, it's gonna change our whole world. But I want to finish up by telling you, because I know none of you want to eat lunch anymore, I want to tell you, don't panic yet. Don't panic yet. One of the problems we've had is that we've made China 12 foot tall. It's not 12 feet tall. It's not 12 feet tall. It's powerful. It's aggressive. It's competent. It's confident. But it has enormous problems. It's got terrible pollution. You can see the groundwater pollution everywhere in China. There's no safe groundwater to drink almost anywhere in China. People sorting enormous amounts of poverty and sorting through garbage piles. Air pollution where this is in the middle of the day in Beijing, you can't see. Oppressiveness, a state-oppressed um, system that you know, keeps people from expressing their political preferences. China has enormous problems. This is what the government's worried about, but it is trying to offset it 
by becoming a globally dominant power, partly for nationalism reasons, partly because it gets the money from it, partly because it wants no one interfering with China. So don't panic. And I would say, don't give up. But as our late lamented vice president might have said, gird your loins. Gird your loins because the competition is real. The competition has gone global. And until now, I think we haven't taken it seriously enough. So with that, uh, I'll stop so we can get a few questions before lunch. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.